Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit lifepointpb.com. So we spend this day together this morning. I was praying about what to do we're, as we're coming here to the end of this series on the book of Psalms. And Lord, what did you want today to look like? Today is All Saints Day. How many of you have an understanding of what All Saints Day is? You've heard of it. You've, all right, raise your hand. There's a number of you. How many of you, I have no clue what All Saints Day is. All right, great. That's probably half and half. All Saints Day, um, if you grew up Catholic, you would probably be much more familiar with it. It is something the Catholic Church still um, participates in. Today is All Saints Day for, Catholic, for most Catholics. Uh, it is something, actually, after the Re- Protestant Reformation that even many Protestant churches were involved in. They changed the meaning of it and what they did. Now, there's a lot of information that comes in, and some of it we don't know as far as the history of things. Um, but we do know with All Saints Day, it seemed to originate in the 600s. One of the popes, I think it was Gregory, who initiated this day. And it was a day to remember all of the saints who were in heaven. Now, this w- included those that, they, that were martyred, those who had done some special deed. And it also included ordinary, regular folks who had made it to heaven. Again, based on the premise that you made it to heaven, and I'm quoting, this is not my words, I'm quoting, you made it to heaven based on your good deeds and the grace of God. All right? That's the quote. And so it was a belief, those who made it. On November 2nd, which was All Souls Day, it was a day to pray for those who hadn't quite made it to heaven yet. They were still in purgatory or wherever, and they, hadn't, they didn't have the good deeds or, what, or, the, or enough of the grace of God yet to make it on into heaven. But All Saints Day was a day to remember those who had. And it was a, speci- a, a specific time re- really to remember, especially those who had given great sacrifice in following Jesus. Now, the, it was called All Saints Day or All Hallows Day, All Holy Day. Thus, on October 31st, it was All Hallows Eve. Okay? We know it as Halloween. All right? All Hallows Eve. Een, the old English word for evening, hallow meaning holy. So it was the holy evening before All Saints Day. Okay? And there are a lot of practices that came into this, we believe, some 2,000 years ago from... Uh, from from Britain, from Ireland, from the, from the, uh, the Celts and, and Druids and different ones, and they had certain practices that kind of got mixed up with the church and what they were doing, and it kind of all got mixed together in this going out and what we know as trick-or-treating and giving of gifts and all that kind of thing. It's kind of a mix-mash of all of the, some of the, some of the cultish things that took place 2,000 years ago and things they did in the church and all got, got mixed together. And that became Halloween as we know it. But it all began, at least... For the church, it began with All Saints Day and this time to recognize that. Now, when Martin Luther came along, on October 31st of 1517, he nailed the thesis, his 95 thesis, to the door of the church there in Wittenberg. Began what we know as the Protestant Reformation. He did it on October 31st, All Hallows' Eve. Why? Because he knew... Two reasons. Number one, next day, everybody would be in church because it would be All Saints Day. And secondly, he was burdened, you could say disgusted, overwhelmed by the, the debauchery in the church, 
by the worldliness, by the just the way that, matter of fact, Martin Luther's biggest issue were indulgences. Um, there are a lot of things that we know about Martin Luther, but if you read and study him, the main reason he was kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church were because of his view against indulgences. Indulgences was simply you paying for extra grace that Christ would give so that you could make it into heaven, or some friend that you might have or family member could make it into heaven. And he was vehemently opposed to indulgences. So he nailed his thesis. The start of the Reformation as we know it began on Halloween or All Saints Day, November 1st, 1517. So today, and, and based on that, in the Protestant Reformation, after that, and, and as that went on, they continued to celebrate All Saints Day, but remembering in particular those who had followed the Lord wholeheartedly, paid great sacrifice, even many who had died and been martyrs, and they, were continued, they continued to remember them. So as I was thinking about today being All Saints Day, being this day throughout history that has been celebrated that way, the Lord gave me just a prompting, an idea. And he's like, Troy, the people in your life, the saints that God has used, that that I have used in your life, um, why don't you do something? Why don't you do a little research and find out what their favorite psalm is or was? So I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. I've never done that. So I started researching and looking specifically for favorite psalms of, in particular, and I had to narrow it down because there are hundreds of believers who've gone on before who have encouraged and impacted our life, impacted my life, impacted your life. So I had to narrow it down. I narrowed it down to five specific ones. What was their favorite psalm? And why? How did God use it? And we're going to look at that this morning when we talk about psalms of the saints. All right? The first one we're going to look at is George Mueller. And I think there's a picture. There he is, George Mueller. It says, a million and a half in answers to prayer. That's the slogan on that picture. Down in the bottom corner, it's harder to see, but you may be able to make out. Um, if they kill those lights right there, yeah, that might help. Um, down in the corner, you see children around the table. George Mueller started, um, he started a ministry uh, for the spread of scriptural knowledge. And the, it, it had five, five purposes for this ministry the teaching of children and adults in biblical knowledge, the spread of Bibles around the world, the spread of gospel tracts around the world, the sending out of missionaries. And fifth, the last one was what he's most remembered for now today, and that was bringing in orphans, children who had lost both mom and dad who were destitute, to bring them in and care for them. George Mueller, when it says a million and a half in answer to prayer, it's talking about then a million and a half pounds in direct answer to prayer because George Mueller believed that he should make needs known only to God and trust God to supply. I told you I was going to share with you a little bit of, of my, what God's done to shape my life. One of the reasons I don't push money is because George Mueller has had such a pr- profound impact on my life. And I have seen in my own personal life the, how, my strength is faith, uh, my, how my faith is strengthened and how other people's faith is strengthened when we simply pray and see God do rather than doing other things that might seem to make sense but, but also may manipulate or put pressure on people. George Mueller went to a prayer meeting as a young man to mock it. That's why he went. He was an unbeliever. He went to mock a prayer meeting. God saved him in that prayer meeting and began to do this tremendous work in his life. And George Mueller became this incredible man of prayer. And he really believed, and the reason he started the orphanage wasn't to take care of orphans. That was not the reason he started it. 
The reason that he started orphanages was to demonstrate to Christians that God could be trusted. Because he was looking around in England in his day, and Christians, like today, often we talk about God and how almighty he is and how powerful he is and how wonderful he is, but we live our lives as though we have to take care of ourselves. George Mueller saw this, and he thought, Lord, would you give me the opportunity to be a demonstration that you can be trusted? You can be trusted for everything. Now, this ministry that George Mueller started, and again, it did more than just orphanages, all of it provided for by God through direct answer to prayer. He used people, but George Mueller would not make his needs known to people. He simply made them known to God, and he would pray. And if you're interested, uh, there's a great little book called Answers to Prayer by George Mueller. It's a little bitty tiny book. It's just story after story of how God, in miraculous ways, how he provided there were 10,024 orphans that were taken care of during the years that George Mueller had this orphanage in his lifetime. 10,024 cared for. At the highest point, over 2,000 a day, orphans being fed and cared for and housed, all in direct answer to prayer. All the provision coming just in answer to prayer. As a matter of fact, when George Mueller started orphanages in England, there were only beds for 3,600 orphans in all of England. 3,600. That was the total capacity for all orphans in the nation of England when George Mueller began his orphanage. When George Mueller died, in addition to the 10,000 that he had cared for, there was now capacity in England for over 100,000 orphans because God's work through him had inspired others. And God's move there and taking care. And that spread not just through England, but began to spread around the world. God used him. One of the things I love about George Mueller, and you may not know, he, when he was 70 years old, God gave him the, the dream of it. It had been a lifelong dream for him to travel to different nations and preach the gospel. He was a great supporter of missions. As a matter of fact, he supported a man who, another one that you're going to see in a minute, Hudson Taylor. He was a supporter of Hudson Taylor, financially a supporter of that ministry, the China Inland Mission. But George Mueller wanted to travel to as many countries as possible and preach the gospel. So at 70, from 70 to 87, over 17 years, God gave him the opportunity to travel to 42 nations. Now, this is before airlines. This is when you did it by boat and train or donkey or whatever way you could get there, all right? So for 17 years, from 70 to 87, he traveled to 42 nations, estimated preached 10,000 sermons during that time all over the world. Um, at 87, he was getting a little frail, and so he said, I have to come back. But he continued for another 10 years to work in the ministry there in Bristol, England. He didn't stop. As a matter of fact, when they found him at 98 years old, in the morning that he died, he was kneeling beside his bed, and they came in and found him. Reading about George Mueller as a young man changed my life. And as you read about him, you will recognize there was a psalm that God used. As George Mueller began all of this, there was a psalm, and a particular verse, Psalm 81, verse 10. Now, Psalm 81 is a verse, or is a psalm about... Israel's disobedience and their rebellion and, and what happened to them in Egypt and all of this, their unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness to them. But verse 10 was the one that stood out to George Mueller. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. It is said of George Mueller that he did extraordinary things for God. And he would say, I did nothing for God. I simply did what Psalm 81 said. I opened my mouth wide and he filled it. I believed him. I believed him for everything. And I wanted to be used by him so that other people could believe him as well. If you've never read anything about George Mueller of Bristol, you need to read about him. All right?
Let me tell you about another one. This one you may never have heard of. It's a lady. And again, tremendous impact on my life. Um, she's there in the far right with some of her children. Uh, you think, wait a second, they, there's something wrong with this picture. Something doesn't fit for putting these in groups, right? These are her children because they're adopted. Um, Mary Slessor of Calabar. Mary Slessor, Scottish girl, mill worker, grew up poor, horrible family. Her dad was an alcoholic. Um, she literally, she and her mom and her, old, and her little younger brother um, went to work in the mills as children. She and her brother did to help support their six siblings that were below them. Um, their dad um, had a trade but spent most of their income drinking. And so just an incredibly impoverished life that she grew up in and with. But her mother loved the Lord. And Mary, um, she, was, she was constantly reading her Bible. She grew up in a little church there in Dundee. And God began to speak to her heart. Because in their church there in Dundee, um, they were connected to missions in Calabar. Now, Calabar, we know now as Ethiopia. It is southern Ethiopia. Um, and so there was this... Uh, no, I'm sorry, not southern Ethiopia. Southern Nigeria, because it's, it's on the west coast. It's southern Nigeria. And their church had a mission there, and they were involved in that. As a matter of fact, Mary Slessor read reports sent back by David Livingston. David Livingston there in Africa, and she was stirred. Now, what's the connection that we have with David Livingston? David Livingston was the first white man to go to Malawi. He was the first white man to see Lake Malawi, which now has a training center and an orphanage that we're part of right there on the lakes of Lake Malawi. But David Livingston was the first man to see it. And he called it the warm heart of Africa, and he said, God, you could do a work here. You could do a work here. And here we are, some almost 200 years later. Mary Schlesser, young woman, not married, felt God's call at the age of 28. She takes off and goes to Africa alone. She gets there, and in the city where that she landed, where most of the missionary effort, what, there were lots of missionaries, but her burden was inland. It was in the tribes. It was out in the bush where there were no missionaries. She's the first white woman to go in the interior of Africa alone. She went by herself. As a matter of fact, it was her belief she was safer alone and that the work of God could be carried out better because as a woman, she was less threatening than the men. And God used her. She was the first British magistrate, first woman British magistrate in the, in the British kingdom. Um, they made her that when, when Nigeria, Calabar at the time, became a British protectorate. God used her in significant ways. She was so respected among the tribe's people that when they needed someone, when they needed a white person to serve in this, capacity, this official capacity, they immediately selected her. There was something that she encountered when she was there. There was a lot of, a lot of ritualism, a lot of satanic worship, spirit, spirit, um, they call it animism, spirit worship. And one of the things that they believed and was a common practice and she immediately encountered was that when there were twins, it was believed that one of them was the child of the devil or of an evil spirit. And since they didn't know which one, both had to be killed. And then the woman, the mother, she was cast out. She was ostracized. Well, you can imagine when Mary Slessor gets there and she sees this, I mean, she's shocked and her heart is broken. And so what does she do? 
she begins to spread the word, and she goes and she appeals, and she, and she says, you cannot kill these children. This is, you're, you're, this is not true. They're not, they're, they're father. The scripture says that God, God the Father, that all life comes from him. They're not from the devil, and they're not from an evil spirit. And, and she couldn't convince them, so she said, I will take them. I will take the twins. Don't kill them. Bring them to me, and I will take them. So she had dozens and dozens of children that she adopted that were twins. Tremendous work that she began to do all across in that region, in that area, and how God used her. But she had to overcome fear. The fear of going off as a single young woman to Africa, then the fear of going into the bush alone by herself, often the only white person for miles and miles around. Her verse, the one that God used so powerfully in her life, Psalm 27 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, this next verse, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, you and I think of that more as a picture, an analogy, a metaphor. But at times it was a reality of her because cannibalism was common. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Based on the promise that God made to her in Psalm 27, Mary Celestia said, Lord, I trust you. I'll go. And I'll not just go to the place where it's comfortable. I'll go where no woman has been before. I'll follow you. I'll trust you in all of this. Again, if you've never read about Mary Celestia, you should. This next couple... John and Betty Stam. They were. John was actually a, a student at Moody Bible Institute. Betty grew up on the mission field in China, came back to the States to study. That's when she and John met. A uh, relationship began to develop. They really cared, loved each other. But at the time, John was being called by China Inland Mission, who was founded by Hudson Taylor. He was being called to go to a region that women couldn't go, or they didn't think was safe for women to go at that time. And she was already part of China Inland Mission, had already been accepted, and was going to a different location. And so they realized as much as they loved each other, God was calling them to different places, and they had to follow the Lord. So they, they parted ways. And God in his, his providence and his sovereignty causes an illness for Betty and a change of circumstances for John, and they end up together in Shanghai. And, and, and the, whole, the whole plan for them and where they were going changed. And so they're in Shanghai in 1933, or early part of 1933, they were married. All right? This picture was taken about the time they were married. They quickly became pregnant. She did, Betty did, with a little girl. All right? This picture, she's three months old. Priscilla. And then God sent them, opened the door, and sent them to a village that was considered to be relatively safe. That You know, they were a young married couple and young baby. This location was considered very safe, or, or considerably safe at that time. But communist forces, and nobody knew this, communist forces were moving in. And... Those communist forces came, and within two weeks of them arriving in the village where they were, they came in and took over the village, came to the door, burst in, took them 
captive, John and Betty and the baby. They were going to kill the baby because they're like, we don't want to take care of a baby. And they were going to ask a ransom for John and Betty, but they didn't want the baby. So they were about to kill the baby. And one of the Christians, one of the believers that they had led to the Lord there just in the short time that they had been, stood up and said, please don't kill the baby. And so the guard said, if you want the baby to live, then you die in his place. And he hacked him with a sword, killed him there. Little Priscilla lived, that believer died. They were taken for a number of days in captivity and moved to different locations. They asked a huge reward uh, from the mission organization for their release. That, that request never reached the mission organization. They were killed before, the, before that happened. Um, John tried to protect his wife and his daughter. He asked them to release them, keep him, um, while he was making his appeal, they beheaded him. Betty was there with him. She did not scream out. She simply knelt down and laid across his body, and then they beheaded her. Now, prior to this, though, Betty had taken their daughter, Priscilla, and they were in this little home. And again, when you see how God moves and how he works, because everybody knew there was a baby with them, but she bundled up little Priscilla in a sleeping bag type thing, just bundled up real tight because it's cold. It's November in China. It was cold. She put some food there and a change of diapers and clothing, and she pinned two $5 bills that she had. She pinned inside there with the other things, and she put her, kind of hid her there in the room. Little Priscilla was there for 36 hours without food or water. Um, The other Christians, when they heard about John and Betty being killed, they said, well, what about the baby? There was no baby with them. So they were able to sneak back in. They found little Priscilla. She was fine, no, no worse for wear. But they had this problem. They had to get her to the nearest missionary, which was 100 miles away, and they had no resources to do so. And they began to open and go through, and, and Betty's last act before she was going to die with her husband is pinning those two $5 bills in there, which God used then to get little Priscilla back to this missionary and then back to her grandparents and then ultimately back to the United States where she grew up. You say, what a waste, what a loss. They were only there for two weeks. Because of what happened to John and Betty Stam, there were hundreds of missionaries who, who volunteered for the field and went out all across the United States because their story went out all over this country. Now, what was their psalm? What was the psalm that they had before any of this happened, before they knew what was going to happen in their life? What was the psalm? It was Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth. Your saving. Your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. God bless them. There was a quote. I'm going to read it for you. I think I have it on my notes here because I can't remember it word for word. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot. How many have heard of Elizabeth Elliot? Most of you. Elizabeth Elliot read a poem or read a, it really was a prayer written by Betty Stam. Betty Stam wrote it when she was 18 years old. Elizabeth Elliot saw it when she was 12 years old and put it in her Bible, kept it in her Bible all of her life. 
It says this, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to you, to be yours forever. Fill me and seal me with your Holy Spirit. Use me as you will. Send me where you will. And work out your whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. John and Betty Stam, ones God used in my life and challenged me. Got two more. Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael. Different background than many of these. Many of these came from very poor backgrounds, and God used them, brought them out of poverty. Amy Carmichael came from what we would consider an upper middle class family, fairly, fairly well to do. As a matter of fact, when she was 17 years old, she was walking with two of her younger brothers. She was the oldest of seven. And she was, she's from Ireland, and there, I, I can't remember if they were in Dublin or Glasgow, somewhere in Ireland. Glasgow's not in Ireland, it's in Scotland, but Dublin, wherever. Um, I should know, I'm originally from over that way somewhere. Um, but they were walking, it was a cold, blustery day, and they saw this very poor older woman carrying a bundle. She was struggling in the wind under the way of that bundle. And so Amy and her brothers went over, and they tried to help her, and they took the bundle, and they're, and they're walking with her, trying to help her along. But other people saw them, other people they knew, from their class, their status, saw Amy. And Amy shares in her journal, she said, this horrible, horrible um, embarrassment came over me to be seen with this woman and carry, and all the looks that people gave. And she said, I couldn't, but what am I doing? Why am I, why am I doing this? And, and why, are we, why, are we, why are we even seen with this woman? And what are, what are other people thinking? What are they going to think of me? And she goes on about how she, and she said, as she's walking along, they passed this fountain, and she said, I heard a voice as clear as if it was audible. And it was the verses that says, wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, precious jewels. And he said, our work shall be tried as by fire. Those that are of the flesh, the wood, hay, and stubble, it all burns up. Those that are gold, silver, precious jewels, they last. And she said, the Lord spoke to my heart so clearly that day and said, Amy, your heart all of your good works up to this point, all your Christian behavior has been wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble. She was broken that day as a 17-year-old girl. Not long after, just a couple years after that, she was at a Keswick con- conference and heard Hudson Taylor speak. She was challenged. So she began, she, she surrendered and said, Lord, I'll go, I'll go to the mission field. I'll work. Before she did that, there in her hometown, she began to work with the young women. They called them shawlies because they didn't have money for a hat, so they wore shawls over, shawls over their head. Is that how you said that? S-H-A-W. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about, right? Thing ladies wrap their cloth thing they wrap their head up with. Um, and so she began to work with them. Of course, the people in her church were, and then she brought them, like, how dare her, she brought them to church. Wait a second, Amy, you can't do this. I mean, and they couldn't figure out, the church couldn't figure out which was worse, that she brought them to church or that her mother let her go down to the slums where they were to minister to them at all. But God had begun to do a work in Amy, and she learned what it was to die to herself, and she really didn't care what people thought of her anymore. She went to Japan to start with, didn't stay there very long, about 18 months. 
knew that that wasn't where God wanted her. But she ended up in the southern tip of India. And they're working most of her life, working, started a, a ministry called Donavor, and there she would rescue primarily young girls who were being used in temple prostitution. Young girls as five, six years old and up. Um, and we would bring them in, care for them. And then it became not just young girls, but also young boys because they were used as well. God began to use her, and they, this, this home, and again, she was, she was greatly influenced by George Mueller and Hudson Taylor. So here was another person who said, we're not going to make our needs known to anyone but God and God's provision for this ministry in India. And, and the impact that she had continued to have. Amy was there for 55 years without a furlough. She never went home. Matter of fact, once she went to India, she never left. She is buried there on the property. She was called Amma, Mother and the impact that she had. Amy's written a lot, 35 books and all kinds of poems and songs. You do well to read some of her things. She wrote a poem, and I don't remember all of it, but it, it, stuck, with, it, it, it stuck with me all these years. And the gist of this poem is she says, she's talking about wounds and scars, and she looks at someone and says, no wounds, no scars. Could you have traveled far who has neither wound nor scar? Once she was asked by a young woman, what opportunities do the mission field? If I come to India and serve, what opportunities are available to me? And she goes, it offers you a chance to die. Amy never forgot what God told her when she was 17 years old. About dying to herself. Her psalm is Psalm 32. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. She would say, God delivered me from myself. He delivered me from myself. I found another quote. I was reading Amy some this week. And these people are like friends to me. I've never met any of them, but they're like friends and reading of them. But I was reading Amy again this week and saw something I'd never seen. And I thought you might be encouraged by this. She was reading Psalm 25, and she said, All the paths of the Lord are loving and faithful. That's what it says in Psalm 25.10. She said, I have pondered this verse lately and have found that it feeds my spirit. All does not mean all except the paths I am walking in now, or nearly all except this especially difficult and painful path. All means all. So your path with its unexplained sorrow or turmoil, do you have a path right now with unexplained sorrow or turmoil? And mine with its sharp flints and briars, both our paths, with their unexplained perplexities, their sheer mystery, they are his paths on which he will show himself loving and faithful. Nothing else, nothing less. Nothing else, nothing less. Whatever path we have on, and again, Psalm 25, all the paths of the Lord are loving and faithful. All of them. There's one more. We, I could go on all morning and well into the afternoon because there are great men and women that have had such an impact on my life in reading about them, studying them, but none more so than Hudson Taylor. If you were to ask me who my hero is, I'd say Hudson Taylor. 
reading, and maybe it was the time of life where I was reading Hudson uh, or about him. I don't know, but the Lord used it in significant ways, used him in significant ways. And the picture you see, there's Hudson in the middle. He started what is now called OMF, Overseas Missionary Fellowship. At the time, it was China Inland Mission because all mission organizations went to the coast along China, but no one, no non-Chinese individual went to the interior of China with over a billion people who were lost. At 17 years of age, God stirred Hudson Taylor's heart to go to inland China. You see him here doing something. He was a maverick. It's common now in missionary work, but he was one of the first to do it. Is He wore Chinese dress because he said wearing European dress made him stand out. It was a distraction. But he was considered crazy, a maverick. Matter of fact, he was shunned by the other missionaries, many of them, for this practice. They felt it was unbecoming. Hudson Taylor believed that God had a, a plan, a system, if you will, in Psalm 126. That he was going to believe God and, and put it to the test. Psalm 126 says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev in the south in the desert. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Hudson Taylor believed that there are three steps in those three verses. First, there is a call for God's blessing. The labor that God stirs your heart with, the, the ministry, the, the kingdom work that he stirs your heart with, whatever that is, you ask for his blessing on it. It's going to be followed by seasons of tears. Sowing in tears, working even though it's painful when the unexpected happens and when tears come. But he said, but you will come back with a harvest. That God will do that. That he will answer your prayer. And part of his answer to your prayer for blessing are the tears. And the tears become the very water that he uses for the harvest that he produces. It was Huston Taylor's belief. I don't disagree with him. He lived it out. You can watch it in his life, and I've been challenged with it in my own. As you walk through these, you begin to, God begins to stir you for something. He begins to stir in you and give you a passion, a burden, a care for someone or something other than yourself. For his kingdom to be advanced. For the gospel to go out. For people to be saved. For lives to be changed. For freedom. To, we talk about freedom. For freedom to take place. He begins to stir you for something more than yourself. Then ask him to bless it. Ask him, Lord, send your blessing, your favor on this. What you're stirring, I don't want to do it in my own strength. I don't want to do it in my own effort. Lord, would you bless it? Would you show, cause your favor to be on it? But understand that with that, often tears are going to come right along. You're going to do the labor and work often with tears, with sorrow, with hurt, with wounding. man I used to work for called it death of a vision. So when God gives you a vision, then it seems to die. Oh, we could take all morning. I could tell you how many deaths to a vision that I've had. It's okay. It's part of God's plan. But you keep. You just keep trusting. You keep moving in the midst of that. And the scripture says, and Hudson Taylor firmly believed this, you come back with a harvest. 
One of the most powerful things that I read about Hudson Taylor, and I close with this. Lord, I'm going to ask you to come play. Later on in Hudson Taylor's ministry, this wasn't at the very beginning. This was he was a young man now, probably well, a, a, an older young man now, late thirties, right around forty. He's traveling on the Yangtze on a boat, and he's talking to a young man named Peter. And he's sharing the gospel with Peter, and Peter is he's forlorn, he's overwhelmed, he's discouraged. We would probably call him depressed today. He's carrying a lot of weight on him. Hudson Taylor's talking with him, sharing Christ with him and all, and it doesn't seem to be responding. And Hudson Taylor's they, they take a little break and Hudson Taylor's doing something else and he's he's praying for Peter. Peter's on his heart. And then he hears a splash. Peter jumped overboard into the Yangtze, very swift currents, and he disappears under the surface. Hudson Taylor runs to the rail and he sees him, or he sees where he went in. There's nothing he can do. I mean, he doesn't have a flotation device. He doesn't have any way to get to him. He can't dive in. The current's too swift. He'll, he'll be taken right along. But he looks over and he sees two men, two Chinese men fishing. They have a net. He thinks that's just the thing, that net. They can come and they can just make a pasture here and they'll catch him in the net, pull him up just like a fish. So they, he calls to them in their language. Come, come quickly. Someone is drowning here. Someone is dying. Come, pull your net. Rescue him. And they look and they respond back, Vebin, Vebin, it's not convenient. Not convenient. We're busy. Not convenient. He pleads with them. Please, don't talk about convenience. Come. Right now, you can save life. You can be used to save this man. It's like, no, it's not convenient. And he says, I'll pay you. And they say, how much? He said, all that I have and whatever he had, he took out of his, whatever he was carrying it in, his money pouch or whatever. He said, this is all I have. I'll give you all. And they say, it's not enough. It's all I have. Please come. And finally, after arguing with them, they finally came. And on the first pass, they get Peter and they pull him up. But it's too late. Peter's gone. Hudson Taylor was on his way back to England when all this happened. So he was speaking in a church of Anglos like us, most of us. And there was, just like here this morning, there was outrage. There was, you could hear it, the gasp. And how could people be so cruel and so heartless? And Hudson Taylor looked at them. And, and to this day, the, what the Lord spoke to my heart is he said, is the body any more precious than the soul? Is the body any more? We would be outraged over these men because they would not save the body. And yet, millions, billions were dying in China. Their souls going into eternity lost. And often we'd say, it's not convenient to do anything about it. My life was changed that day when I read that it continues to be changed because I slipped back into comfort and convenience 
Can I ask you something this morning? Would you be willing to let God speak to you from his word, by his spirit, through the lives of other people? Would your heart be open and soft and say, God, you can talk to me. I'll listen. And like Hudson Taylor or Amy Carmichael or Mary Slessor or John and Betty Stam or George Mueller or thousands upon thousands of others who we will never know their name until we get to eternity. To say, Lord, you can talk to me. I'll listen. I'll go. Whatever you ask me to do. For some in this room, he may call you to go to places you never dreamed and never imagined. For others, he's calling us right now today, right here where we are in Palm Bay. I don't have to go... I may have to go no further than across the street or down the hall. But it's still a call. It's still a work that he wants to do in and through us. Don't you bow your heads with me? Are you willing today? See, we often talk about God's will. Is he willing? But I love what it says when, when the man came to Jesus and he was sick. And he says, Lord, I believe you can heal me if you will. If you're willing, you can heal me, Lord. Jesus said, I'm willing. He's always been willing. The question is, is my heart open? Is it open to respond to what he wants to say and do? So this morning, is your heart open? You say, I'm scared, Troy. I don't know where this path will lead. All of his paths, according to Psalm 25, all of his paths are faithful and loving. I'm not sure I'm up to facing the tears that may come or the sorrow that may come or the sacrifice that may come. I'm not sure I can do that. I can tell you right now you can't, but you don't have to. He does it. He does it. Just say yes. Corey Ten Boone, another great saint, challenged my life. After all of her experiences in concentration camp and all that she'd seen, she's the one who said there is no pit so deep or dark that his love is not deeper still. Just an open heart today. That's what the Spirit asks of you and me. I'm open, I'm willing. And if God tarries, if Jesus doesn't come back and years go on, 
It may be in God's choice that he uses one of you to challenge one or ten or a dozen or a hundred or thousands others. Say, they just trusted God. They were just normal, ordinary, nothing special people. That's what we are, folks. But we put our trust in a great big God. And can I ask you, do you know him today? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally, relationally, not just about him? If not, if he's drawing you today, if he's stirring your heart, would you just respond and say yes? Say yes, Jesus, I believe that you're what I need. You're all that I need. That you are the son of God who died for me, for my sin. And I have no hope except in you. None. I believe. Thank you for your work. Thank you for what you're doing in each of us. What you have done and what you have in store. Lord, would you take each of our hearts and make us more open and receptive to how you want to speak. Not just in Psalms, although Lord, I believe there's much you want to say to us in Psalms. And always will. Because of the power of it. Because of the realness of it. Because it flowed out of life, real life. Lord, would you make our hearts open to receive what you want to say? And today, we are grateful for the men and women who have answered the call, who have followed you, and who have challenged our lives. But Lord Jesus, we're more grateful for you because they didn't do it. You did it. They're not the heroes, even though we sometimes look at them that way. You are. You are the one who changes hearts and lives. You are the one who saves. You redeem. You buy back. You change us. You fill us. You give us wisdom. You give us hope. You give us joy. Lord, you are everything that we need. And so, Lord, today we honor you. We worship you. And we thank you that you work in ordinary people. Which means, Lord, today that you work in us. That what you've done for others, you'll do for us. You are no respecter of persons. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. As we, as we spend time together this afternoon, would you cause us, each of us, to be able to rejoice in you and to be able to just testify to your goodness and your greatness in our lives and the lives of others. Lord, that we would leave this place today strengthened and encouraged by your spirit and our inner man because of your truth at work, of your stories at work, your testimonies at work. Lord, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And because we do not hold on to our lives as though they were dear, we let them go. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. We praise you. 
And we pray this in your precious name. And all God's people said, amen.